Hey guys, tonight we're going to be reading from The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. Be back in a minute. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Cut it off. I hear it. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? I hope you said fine. I'm doing much better. I'm not coughing as much. We'll see what happens during the show because a lot. What was it the day before yesterday when I thought I wasn't coughing as much and I read and I was coughing all the way through the show. But uh, it looks like I'm doing a lot better at this point. Um, finally, this thing's left my system. Had a horrible day with it yesterday and then woke up this morning feeling great. So hopefully everything goes well. Pretty soon I'll have these things off. No glasses anymore. I'll be really happy about that. Back to contacts, hopefully tomorrow or, or, or Sunday. I'm looking forward to that too, that, you know, to get back into that flow. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Predator Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. Let me get the chat room going here. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you. It might take us a couple days, but we can get to you. And in the case, you know, because California is this huge state. People don't realize how big we really are here. But in the case that we can't get to you right away, we will definitely have one of our psychics call you and speak with you. And if, and if what's going on in your home or office is paranormal, they can calm it down a lot of, you know, most of the time until we can get out there. So that's one of the pluses of having a great, a great uh, psychic team. Anyway, um, I'm going to be reading again tonight. And, uh, you know, it's like I, what happened was, you know, when I got sick initially and this thing with the eyes happened, I don't see well with my glasses, so I don't like to. Hello, Michelle. So I don't like to write letters to potential guests because it'll have mistakes. In it. There's just nothing I can do about it because it's just lots. And then trying to find files on the computer is a nightmare. So I kind of stopped. Plus, I was sick. I didn't, you know, I just didn't have it in me to stay up late at night because usually I work nights to, you know, doing this stuff. So, um, you know, this is how we ended up doing, like doing, doing, doing a lot of read, you know, book read like this, and and actually, uh, you know, um, the best ofs, right? And then the shows for Nan with Nancy and stuff. However, I got three guests booked for next week, so we are look, so we're looking good already, and I'm really excited about that. Really good guests too. Uh, I'll give you a little hint. I got somebody who is going to be talking about extraterrestrials. Uh, we're going to be talking about the. Uh, the, the, the opioid the, the opioid crisis. I've got a guest for that. Maybe Karen Clark will join us for that one. I don't know yet, but I do have a guest for that. And, of course, we've got Nancy. So that leaves two spots to fill, and I should have those filled pretty quickly. So I'm looking forward to getting back yeah, into the show and, and get this thing rolling. It's kind of like when I went to Disneyland last year, if everybody remembers that. It was all, it was all like pre-records and, and some best of us because I was gone for seven days for that trip. So... Yeah, and so it takes me a while to, you know, book people. So it takes me a while to get back on my feet and get people booked because I'm, I'm, 
I'm it. I'm the I'm the, I'm the bottle dishwasher here for this whole thing. I do it all for this thing. And uh, back here, this will all be changed probably on Sunday. I hate doing it. I really love this backdrop. Out of all the backdrops I have in stock, and I have quite a few. This is my favorite. The only other favorite I have is the uh, winter uh, the winter one with all the snow on the trees and everything that I have in the other room in the big studio. But this is my favorite. So yeah. And of course, I love the California Haunts Radio backdrop too. I mean, that's one of my personal favorites as well. But I really like this one. It feels it feels all homey with Christmassy stuff, and I love Christmas. I love Disney. I love everything. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to read the, the Sylvia Schultz book about you know spooky Christmas stories in there. And I don't know how close we are to the end. So when we hit the end of this, I do have another book in mind, and hopefully I, I can call it up on my tablet. Um, it's a Gutenberg book, so that means it's completely. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I love it too. I love it. I have, in fact, I have a Christmas tree up all year round in, in my living room because my my mother loved loved Christmas so much that we started leaving our tree up all year round. So I leave it up as a dedication to her. But anyway, so um, I don't know how much farther we have in in, in the Sylvia Schultz book, but once we're done, you got to give me a couple minutes. I have this the, the, this other book planned, and actually, you know, I want to ask you guys. Um, Rudyard Kipling wrote some ghost stories and would you like to hear true ghost stories or would you rather hear hear what he wrote this is, this is kind of laced in fantasy ghost story kind of thing you know so it might be more more story more of a story story instead of just reading such and such happened somewhere kind of like what we're reading right now so let me know in the chat room what you guys would prefer and then uh, i'll decide you know which is which because i have them both called up to go okay so without further ado let's get to you know like like i think says in the front Put your slippers on, sit by the fire, grab some hot hot cocoa or whatever it is you drink, Starbucks, you know, I don't know, uh, but grab whatever it is you drink. Maybe you're having dinner or whatever and uh, put me on your TV and uh, make me be, I did that to myself too. I have a 65 inch TV. I was looking at the reruns of my show, put myself on really big and about died when I saw it. And I was like, nope, don't want to do that. So I, I do have friends and relatives that do watch me on their, on their TV sets. I also have people that carry me around in their pockets when they're cleaning house. So. There you have that. Let's check out the chat room. Hang on one second. Okay, so where we left off is um, we're kind of reading the Christmas stories finally. She kind of put the Christmas stories in the back of the book. And uh, I keep forgetting that because I wanted to read them. You know, I wanted to save those for like Christmas Eve and stuff, you know, to read over that first that, that week. And I forgot they were there. So, you know, here we're a week after New Year's and I'm reading these things. But it's still interesting to read them. There is Saga. You're leaving me. Okay, cool. All right, Michelle. Well, thank you for checking in. I really appreciate it. Okay. All right. So yeah, so we're going to have, see, this is why I have to have my contacts, because I have to keep leaning into the screen. You guys are going to like see, see up my nose and all that. Okay, so here we go, and let's continue with this. And like I said, I don't know how much was left. As of last Monday, there were 160 pages left, so I have no idea what's left. So here we go. And if I cough, I apologize. I don't suspect that I'm going to be coughing a lot during the show, because like I said, I'm 100% better than I was. You know, it, you, you can pretty much tell when, when you're taking like, like over-the-counter stuff, and suddenly you only have to take one a day. You're kicking it. So here we go. 
And I had somebody uh, email me the other day that they couldn't find the Sylvia Schultz book at the library. That's uh, I, uh, This is one of these books that I don't think you would. You would have to go through Amazon and get it or, or Sylvia's website to get this book. Okay. The Mutiny on the Junior. Many people live <clears throat> on Martha's Vineyard because of its beauty and history. Many more people visit the vineyard as tourists. Where'd it go? There it goes. Don't be weird. Don't be doing some, don't be weird weird stuff. Okay. Because of its beauty and history, many more people visit the vineyard as tourists. And some of the year-round residents are, well, more permanent than most. They've been there all their lives and beyond. What time is it now? It's like a market. 6.38. Okay. Uh, the Victorian Inn on South Water Street caters to the vacationers that visit Martha's Vineyard. This description of the stately inn comes from Holly Nadler's wonderful book, Haunted Island. Quote, Tall windows and white Corinthian columns face the narrow lane with a grace and purity typical of the grander homes, erected in the, in the second half of the 19th century. The mansard roof, added in the 1980s, altered a steeply pitched attic space into a highly serviceable third floor. Inside the inn, the window, the window lace is homey, and the antique furniture is handsome, yet reassuringly lived in. A four-poster bed, cozy comforter, and a teddy bear adorn each bedroom. You feel you've entered an actual Victorian abode rather than the too glossy reproduction from a decorated source book. Sounds like an appealing place indeed. And it is a ghost hunter's paradise. The owner, Kathy Appert, heard a woman's infectious laughter from behind a closed door the morning after she bought the inn. Visitors to the inn have had their own encounters with the resident spirits. The previous owners had trouble with the poltergeist, who would chuck furniture out into the hall during the night. One night, the prankster managed to wedge a large wicker chair into the small closet of an unoccupied room. It took two employees yanking it to work it loose the next morning and to extricate it from the closet. In another room, the poltergeist would scatter an assortment of old-fashioned hairpins, always on the same section of the carpet. Other guests have spoken of waking late at night to see a man in a dark suit sitting in an armchair in their room, calmly smoking a pipe. This spirit ignores the living, but not all of them are so obvious. Oblivious. <laughs> oh, it's going to be like that today, huh? Kathy's daughter was straightening one of the upstairs bedrooms when she heard a man's voice snarl, Get out! There was no one in the room with her at the time. A tourist from New York had a deeply unsettling experience when she slept or spent the night at the Victorian Inn. The room in which she stayed had tall windows overlooking the harbor, and a set of French doors opening onto a wide balcony. Sometime past midnight, the young woman came awake with a start. One of the balcony doors had blown open with a bang. A tall man with a glorious mane of silver-white hair sauntered into the room. He came over to the woman's bed as she lay there, rigid with fear. When he got to the bedside, the ghost reached out and playfully tweaked her nipple. Yikes. Then he ambled back to the balcony and closed the door behind him. The woman lay in her bed, trying to process what had just happened. About a minute later, the balcony doors opened again. Standing outside were five men who looked like they'd just come in from the set of Pirates of the Caribbean. Whalers. With mutton, with mutton chop whiskers, unruly beards, and layers of tattered clothing that had seen hard use as the men toiled on their vessel. The men started to move into the room. Had they come in search of the white-haired gentleman, or who had so really interrupted the woman's sleep. They had taken several steps into the room when the young woman found her voice. She sat up in bed and shrieked, Go away. The five men didn't turn around 
and headed for the balcony door. They simply vanished. Martha's Vineyard has always been home to men who made their living from the begrudging sea. Many of their lost, many, many lost lives to this harsh mistress. One of the men who gloried in the demanding life of a whaling ship captain was Lafayette Raleigh. Born into a family with seawater in his blood, his father was a master mariner. Raleigh signed up for his first whaling expedition when he was just 15 years old. Raleigh showed an aptitude for the technical side of life at sea, and due to his father's influence, he was trained in navigation at an age when other youngsters were serving simply as cabin boys. It was a stroke of luck, both that Raleigh had the innate talent to learn, and that there was a sailor on board with the foresight to teach him. On that first voyage, both the captain and the first mate died of scurvy. It fell to the teenage Raleigh to guide the ship and its crew safely back to port. For his cool head and natural talent, Raleigh was soon rewarded with the command of his own vessel. Raleigh would later serve as master mariner of, of, of the Orizimbo, the Neptune, the Citizen, and the Junior. It was the Junior that was the setting of a tragic event that may have left its mark on Raleigh, and subsequently on the home where he spent much of his life. In 1856, Captain Thomas Mellon recruited a fresh crew in New Bedford to bolster the Junior's numbers for a planned whaling voyage to the South Seas. Mellon's veteran crew were suspicious of the newcomers right from the jump. The new recruits were unfriendly and even downright surly. Even worse, they seemed to deliberately undermine the captain's authority and the ship's morale. When stationed in the crow's nest, for example, they would forget to announce a whale sighting. Not an ideal habit for the crew of a whaling ship. On December 25, 1856, 156 days into the voyage, the junior was under sail several miles off the coast of New Zealand. The crew Mellon had picked up in New Bedford chose their moment to act. Brandishing pistols, they'd hidden in their duffel bags. They'd hidden their duffel bags. They burst into Captain Mellon's cabin and shot him dead. Then they murdered the first mate in his cabin. Nice. The ill-fated ship eventually found its way back to New England. It was cleaned up, and Lafayette Raleigh was chosen to be its new captain in 1857. The same year, he built his future family's home, the home that would later become the Victorian Inn. Was there psychic residue hanging around the junior from the evil deeds of Christmas Day, 1856? Did it follow Raleigh to his new home? The five bedraggled spirits who sauntered into the young woman's bedroom may have been fugitive ghosts from the junior, either its original crew searching for their unlucky captain and first mate, or the murdering mutineers on the prowl for, this, for the same man. Man Overboard all right. Arn Nicolaisen. N-I-C-O-L-A-Y-N. L-A-Y-S-E-N. Nicolaisen. Lean against the rail of the deck of the Ho Silver Spray. The Norwegian sailor was homesick. It was Christmas Eve, 1955. But instead of being home with his family, he was spending the holiday working in the Gulf of Mexico, many hundreds of miles from home. But that, at times, was the life of a sailor. Arnie signed and took one last look at the moon. A side sign. Artie sighed and took one last look at the moon, which was lit by the which lit the waves with a soft silver glow. At least you could imagine that perhaps his family, gathered for their Christmas Eve celebration, might be gazing up at the same silver moon and thinking of him. His eyes still on the moon, Artie reached for the deck rail, but he had misjudged the distance of the moonlight. Grabbing frantically at the air, Artie felt himself falling. He hit the water with a splash and kicked to the surface in a panic. Help, help, he yelled, 
hoping that against all odds, one of his shipmates would hear his voice above the noise of the ship's engines. But the hoe, Silver Spray, steamed away into the night, into the darkness without him. Arnie beat, in, beat the water in front of him in frustration, terror, sending splashes of drops into the night air. Arnie looked around, treading water. He was sure there was no more terrifying place to be than in the middle of the dark sea, in the middle of the night. Arnie knew he was miles from land. The Gulf of Mexico was about 600,000 square miles of dark water, a thousand miles across at its broadest point. If he, strut, if, if he struck out swimming in the wrong direction, he was sure to die of exhaustion long before he reached any shore. Arnie stayed afloat for hours, buoyed by the salt water of the Gulf, but his strength and his morale were both flagging. He'd seen several ships pass, but no matter how loud he'd yelled, he hadn't been able to attract anyone's attention. All Christmas Day he floated, buffeted by the gentle Gulf waves. He was still terrified of swimming in the wrong direction, so he tried to stay put as the sun went down on another day. But he had to do something soon. He couldn't just float forever, or he'd end up floating forever. He put that thought hurriedly out of his mind. The moon rose as big, as beautiful as it is, as it had been on Christmas Eve. Had it only, had it really only been the night before that he'd fallen overboard? His ship was miles away by now, and he had no idea where the nearest land was. It seemed impossible that he could die here, in the welcoming, warm Gulf waters on Christmas Day. Arnie shook his head, blinking salt water out of his eyes. There were two men, shipmates of his and they were walking toward him across the water on a silvery path of moonlight. Arnie seemed to hear ghostly voices coming to him across the water. If you swim toward the moon, the voices said, you'll reach safety. Summoning the last of his strength, Arnie kicked out. Arnie kicked out and started swimming in the direction of the moon. He swam as hard as he could, lifting his head every, every so often to keep the glowing moon in his sights. A few hours later, when Arnie looked around for the moon, he also saw the lights of a tanker ahead of him. In the gray light of the coming dawn, he could just make out the British flag that snapped in the Gulf breeze. He yelled and waved, frantic to get the tanker's attention. Several minutes later, Arnie was being pulled aboard the British surveyor. Follow the path of the moon. His ghostly guides had been right. The Old Man in the Theater On Christmas night, 1933, Mr. Lewis Ames, a fireman working the night shift at the brand new Streatham Astoria Theater in London, was patrolling the empty building. What follows is his account of what he saw that night. Quote, I was making my rounds through the darkened theater shortly after midnight, and as I entered the tea lounge, I saw a figure advancing towards me. Thinking it must be a burglar, I turned my flashlight full on him and saw the figure of an old man, dressed in a long white gown, with a hood over his head, gliding across the floor. His arms held stiffly at his side. I caught a glimpse of a wizened, wrinkled face and short beard. Then he turned away from me and moved towards the stairs, leading down to the vestibule. As Ames followed the spirit, as Ames followed, the spirit floated down to the theater, flinging the heavy theater doors open as it went. The ghost glided down the center aisle and across the orchestra pit. It came to a stop behind the footlights in front of the stage curtain. The ghost turned to face Ames, lifted its hand, and cried out in a weird, gravelly voice, I won't sell, I won't sell, I won't sell. Then it vanished. Of course, no one believed Ames' fantastic story, but then evidence came to light that did much to explain the strange encounter. Four years before, in 1929, there wasn't a theater on the site. 
there was a house, a lovely, comfortable house occupied by Mr. James. Mr. James and his wife were under constant pressure from developers to sell their pleasant little house. Mr. James didn't want to leave his home, but the developers eventually warmed down. The developers eventually warmed down. Mr. and Mrs. James sold their house, which was promptly demolished, demolished to make room for the planned theater. The couple moved to a house in Streatham, and soon after the move, Mr. James died. Lewis Ames had never ever heard of Mr. James, but James's widow confirmed Lewis's description of her late husband. Yes, Mr. James had had a beard. And yes, he had been very attached to his beloved home and extremely reluctant to give it up in the name of progress. No wonder he wandered the aisles of the theater that night, upset over the demolition of his tidy little home. The Abduction of Oliver Larch Christmas Eve, 1889, was a festive time for the Larch family of Indiana. Friends were gathered in the Larch home to help celebrate the holiday. The guests included a minister and his wife from nearby South Bend, and a circuit judge and an attorney who had traveled all the way from Chicago. The Larches welcomed these out-of-town guests, the more the merrier. After Christmas dinner, the party moved into the parlor. Matthew Large sat down at the pump organ. Soon the cozy farmhouse was filled with the rich sound of voices raised in song. Even after such a glorious dinner, everyone still had room for a snack. Young Oliver Large, 11 years old, popped corn in the fireplace, and the guests ate handfuls of the treat. Through the windows, the sight of the fluffy falling snow made a pleasant picture of the season. Around midnight, Matthew, on a trip to the kitchen for a drink, noticed that the water and the cistern was low. Oliver, always ready with a helping hand, cheerfully volunteered to bring in several buckets of fresh water. He clambered into a warm jacket and overshoes, grabbed the bucket, and headed outside of the pump. Mere moments after the door closed behind the boy, a scream tore through the night. The larches and their guests were stunned into silence for a moment. Then Matthew lunged for a lantern, and everyone raced outside. Oliver's footprints led from the kitchen door to a spot about 75 feet from the house. There, they simply stopped. There were no other tracks in the freshly fallen snow, and there was no sign of Oliver. Help! They've got me! The boy shrieked echoed in the yard. Help! Help me, please! The child's voice seemed to come from somewhere in the dark skies above. As everyone stared upwards, Oliver's voice grew fainter and fainter. Then, all was silent. It was as if the boy had been snatched away into thin air. The women led Oliver's sobbing mother into the house, while the men made a frantic search of the farm. They found no trace of the boy, nothing to tell them where he'd gone. The police were called, and they, too, made a thorough investigation. Based on the evidence and reports from the baffled witnesses, Oliver Large must have been swept up into the sky, eerier still. There had been no lights but the lantern Matthew Large carried, no sounds except for the boy's terrified screams echoing from the endless black of the night sky. Oliver Large was never seen again. Bartholomew Rudd's Christmas Cast It was snowing, snowing heavily that Christmas in Fountain City, Wisconsin. The small town, still a bit rough around the edges in this year of 1866, lay nestled near the Michigan River. Good people lived here, and Christmas Eve services were held at midnight. The songs and quiet worship brought a sense of peace and contentment to the frontier town. Bartholomew Rudd had attended that midnight mass, uh, that midnight Christmas Eve service. Now he was headed home. Having reached the age of 53 as a confirmed bachelor, he was resigned in not having a wife and children waiting for him at home. He would spend the holiday alone, 
or so he thought. As Rudd walked home through the falling snow, his soul swelled with warmth of the season. He loved this town, and the walk home from the church was pleasant, even with the chill in the air. In the quiet peace of the house as he passed, he could imagine children tucked snuggling in their beds, dreaming of the gifts St. Nicholas would bring in the night. The falling snow laid a blanket of silence over the dark streets. The only sound that came to Rudd's ears was the crunch of his own boots on the thick snow. Wait, that wasn't quite right. As Rudd walked along, it seemed to him that he could hear another set of footfalls, almost an echo of his own. But that was absurd. The streets were dark and deserted. No one else was abroad on the silent night. There it was again. Footsteps just slightly out of time with his own steps. And was he absolutely certain he was alone in the street? He hated to admit it, but a prowler or a pickpocket would have no respect for the sanctity of Christmas Eve. Rudd picked up his pace. He couldn't see anyone hiding in the shadows, but that didn't mean he wasn't being followed. He reached the safety of his front steps, panting and slightly out of breath from his quick walk. He turned around, hoping he wasn't about to be mugged on the steps of his own house. The street behind him was empty. The only thing following him was the swirling snow. And the only tracks of the snow were those left by his own boots. Rudd stopped the snow from his boots before unlocking his door. Then he stopped as something odd registered in his mind. The snow was still falling thickly. But the shoulders and sleeves of his greatcoat were dry. He wore no hat, and, could, and he could feel the fluffy flakes hitting his hair. But when he pulled off a glove and reached up, his hair, his hair fell dry too. It was as if he he shared a friend's umbrella on the walk home from the church. No snow had touched him. What a strange evening. Rudd Rud shook his head. He heard of Christmas miracles. He just never thought such a thing would happen to him. He unlocked his door and went inside, pausing to hang up his greatcoat and pull off his boots. His toes were chilled, and he was looking forward to poking his, his hearth fire back to life. He took several steps into a study before he registered the figure sitting in the chair next to the fire. Rudd stopped, confused and a little alarmed. Before he could call for help, though, the figure leaned down and prodded the fire with the poker. The fire blazed up cheerfully, and Rudd recognized a stranger. Andrew? Andrew Putnam? The figure stood, a stranger no more. Bartholomew, so good to see you. The men shook hands. They'd been friends since childhood growing up together in the Wisconsin River Town. Adulthood had seen the men go their separate ways. Rudd had been, had been content to stay in Fountain City. Andrew Putnam, meanwhile, had gone off to seek his fortune in the East. He'd ended up in Washington, D.C. He currently held a position in Andrew Johnson's, Johnson's administration. Well, I'll be Andrew Putnam, back in rustic Fountain City for a visit. It was so kind of you to stop by to see me, and on Christmas Eve, too. Rudd was pleased beyond measure for the chance to catch up with his old friend. Have you eaten? My housekeeper keeps a good pantry. Let's have, let's have a late supper. Thanks, that sounds wonderful, Putnam said. If you don't mind, I'll stay here by the fire while, while you play the host. I'm still quite chilled from my journey. Of course, of course. Make yourself comfortable, please. Rudd hurried to the kitchen and threw together two heaping platefuls of food. Cold roast beef, hard-boiled eggs, good cheese and a bowl full of nuts for cracking, stout sourdough bread, and a pot of his housekeeper's marvelous apple butter. He grabbed two bottles of ale as well, and brought the whole train into the study. If Putnam was reluctant to leave, because he fired, and Rudd didn't fault him for that, why, they just eat in front of the hearth. No harm in that. 
Rudd sat down and poured each bottle of ale into a glass. Merry Christmas. The absent friends, absent no more. Putnam raised his glass with a grin. I'll drink to that. The men visited for a couple of hours, fondly, reminis fondly reminiscing about their childhood in the town. Finally, though, Rudd yawned and realized the lateness of the hour. And here I call myself a good host, keeping you up until the wee hours chatting. We'll have plenty of time to talk in the morning. You'll stay the night, won't you? Plenty of room at this end for you, my friend. Putnam nodded. Of course I'll stay. Thank you. Rudd showed his friend to the door of the guest room and told him good night. Putnam merely nodded again. Rudd headed off to his own bed, but once he got there, he found it hard to drop off to sleep. He told himself it was just the excitement of Putnam's visit, plus the last the late supper, as he stared at the ceiling, waiting for sleep to come. He finally dropped off to sleep around dawn. The housekeeper's knock on the door woke him. Merry Christmas, Mr. Rudd, sir. Your breakfast will be ready shortly. Bartholomew shook himself awake. He had only a few hours sleep. Then he remembered. Andrew was here. Rudd dressed quickly and went to see if his friend was up and about yet. Surely the smell of his housekeeper's good coffee would have drawn him out of bed. On his way to the guest room, Bartholomew passed the open door of the study. His steps slowed, then stopped. He stared into the room, disbelieving the evidence right before his eyes. The small table stood the small, well, the small table still stood, stood next to the fireplace, where the fire had long since smoldered down to ashes. Two glasses and two plates sat on the table, but only one of the plates was empty. The other was still piled with food, and one glass was still full of the brim with ale, now gone warm and flat. Bartholomew hurried to the kitchen to find his housekeeper. Had Andrew perhaps left early that morning? But the astonished housekeeper swore that no one had left the house, and she'd been there since shortly after dawn, as usual. Nor had she made up to guest room, as no one had slept there the night before. Rudd spent Christmas Day wandering the house in a fog. Something was wrong, terribly wrong. He knew without a doubt that he'd enjoyed a conversation of several hours with his friend, but there was no sign that Andrew had ever been in the house. The, the two disparate facts nagged at him. An itch deep in his mind that could not be scratched. That night, Bartholomew fell asleep in the chair in front of the study fireplace. The other chair sat empty, almost mocking him. A knock on the door woke him the next morning. Rudd sat, sat up, rubbing sleep from his eyes and stretching to relieve the kink in his neck and back from spending the night in the chair. His housekeeper met him before he got halfway down the stairs. She handed him the telegram, which was postmarked Washington, D.C. Quote, Sir, the family of Andrew H. Putnam wishes to inform you of his death on the first day of December, 1866. We know you join, you join us in mourning his passing, end quote. Stunned, Bartholomew read the two stark sentences over and over. The puzzle was finally solved. The crunch of footsteps accompanying him in the snow, the uneaten meal, the full glass of ale, the empty bed, Bartholomew Rudd had spent Christmas Eve visiting with the dead man. Sir Hughes's Goblet Hatherton Hall stands in Staffordshire, England, home to the lords of Hatherton since the time of the Crusades. This story, though, is of a more recent vintage. The Lord Hatherton, who held that title toward the end of the 19th century, was famed for the quality of his cellars. One Christmas Eve, he hosted a party for some of his friends while their wives attended a party of their own. After dinner, Lord Hatherton and his friends went to his study for port and cigars. All of the men were getting com com companionably sloshed. Comet patting every slosh. 
when one of the guests picked something up from Lord Hatherton's desk. He put it down again rather hastily. It was a human skull, lined with silver. Lord Hatherton picked it up with a grin. The skull, he said, had belonged in life to an ancestor of his, Sir Hugh Hatherton. Sometime after the gentleman's death, his tomb in a private chapel had been disturbed. His skull has found its way to the hands of one of his descendants, who thought it was amusing to line it with silver and use it as a goblet. The skull goblet got mixed reactions from the guests. Some of them were chilled but, fought, but strangely fascinated by the grisly relic. Others were completely appalled and wanted nothing to do with drinking from it. Just then, with a wicked knowing grin, the current Lord Heatherton called for some brandy. All the guests knew of the quality of Lord Heatherton's liquor collection. It was the offer of fine brandy that broke the ice. His guests soon forgot their disgust, as Sir Hugh's skull was filled to the brim and passed around the room. The guests even toasted Sir Hugh with his own skull, inviting him to come spend Christmas Eve with the partiers. Lord Heatherton, the tipsiest of them all, even swore that if Sir Hugh did show, he'd give him back a skull. At the stroke of midnight, Someone set the skull back on the desk, and then every man in the room heard footsteps in the hall outside the study. These were not the footsteps of their wives, light from an evening of dancing at the ball. These were the heavy footsteps of a man, a large man. A noise came from the desk, and everyone turned to look. The skull rose, rolled slowly to the edge of the desk, then fell to the floor and rolled underneath it. This was creepy enough, but then the door of the study slammed open. A bone-chilling blast of air swept the room, and there in the doorway stood a headless knight in full armor. Every man in the room froze. The knight gave a sarcastic, exaggerated bow, turned, and walked with dignity down the hallway. When the wives returned a little while later, their husbands were all stone-cold sober. Most of them insisted on leaving a light on when they retired for the night. The next morning, the skull had vanished from under the desk. The silver plate lighting was found on the lawn outside the city window. The skull itself was never seen again. Blood Brothers This tale comes from the brooding mountains and dark hollows of Appalachia. A young man from West Virginia was engaged to be married to a beautiful girl, but the dark clouds of World War I loomed on the horizon, far across the ocean from his mountain home. The young man was called up sooner than he had expected, and he was shipped off to Germany before he could marry his sweetheart. After he'd gone, the man's older brother came a-courting. He convinced the girl that the soldier had never really loved her. Why, if he had, he wouldn't have left her all alone. Now would he? Soon, he talked the girl into marrying him instead. On Christmas Eve, the soldier returned home unexpectedly. He went straight to the house where his brother lived with his wife. The wife that should have been his. The soldier knocked on the door, and the brother let him in. The brother was on edge during their whole conversation, as his wife was just upstairs, in an, in, in an initiated whisper, he told the soldier that, yes, he had married the girl, simply for her money and for her family's position in society. He warned his younger brother in a low but urgent tone that if he interfered with the marriage in any way, he would kill him dead. The soldier nodded in grudging understanding. The conversation had gone just about the way he'd expected to. He left the house, hearing the door close firmly behind him. The younger brother returned to the house a little while later with a revolver. He shot his older brother and stormed out of the house. The young wife heard the shot and hurried downstairs. She found her husband dying in a spreading pool of his own blood on the floor. With his final agonized breaths, he told her what had happened. 
She called the police, who searched the property thoroughly. They could find no trace of the murderous young soldier. On Christmas Day, a telegram arrived. It was addressed to the older brother. His widow opened it and read it. The telegram said that the younger brother had been killed in action on December 21st. Wow. Peter Curado, this is called Christmas music. Peter Curado and Paul Weiler, Willer, Weiler bought their house at 25 Ward Street in Nantucket in 1971. The couple had been living in Manhattan and considered themselves New Yorkers down to the bone. But they had vacationed on Nantucket in 1969, and the island seemed like paradise to them after the bustle and stress of city living. It took two years, but they eventually found the property on Orange Street. The moment they set foot inside the house, they both knew they'd finally found their dream home. They immediately felt comfortable in the house. They never dreamed it would turn out to be haunted. Peter tells the story. We had a strange but very pleasant recurring experience our first four years in that house. At midnight, every Christmas Eve, we would hear organ music coming from the third floor. It lasted for about ten minutes. It wasn't any Christmas music that we recognized, but it was beautiful. When we went up there, we could hear it more clearly, but we couldn't pinpoint the spot that it was coming from. Needless to say, there was no organ there. When the couple had moved into the house, they discovered that the third floor was stuffed with boxes of sheet music. Peter did a little research and found out that the previous owner, a Mr. Snelling, had served as the minister of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Mr. Snelling had lived in the house at 25 Ward Street for many years and used the third floor as a study. He also had an organ moved up to the third floor. When Mr. Snelling died, his widow donated their home to the church. The church used the house for a while, then it sat silent and empty for years before the couple from New York City bought it. Quote, as we see it, Mr. Snelling was making up for those years when the house had no music on Christmas Eve, says Peter. A Celestial Choir This tale comes from the website paranormalabout.about.com. The contributor, Mel, lived in Klamath Falls, Oregon. On Christmas Eve, 1978, Mel was awakened at around 3 a.m. by the sweet sounds of a choir in full voice. Mel's home was miles from the nearest church. Mel couldn't make out any words or even follow the tune, but the sound was unmistakable. The joyful pain of voice raised in worship. Quote, I got a feeling of angelic exaltation, reference, and gladness of heart. End quote. Mel wrote. Quote again. This was truly a heavenly choir, lifting their voices on high, singing Hosanna in the highest in an unknown tongue, without accompaniment of instruments. End quote. Mel did some investigating and realized that the music wasn't coming from the radio or the television. Mel wandered outside, and strangely, the music wasn't heard outdoors. But Mel couldn't deny the exuberance in the glorious music. Quote, the way the countless male, female, and children's voices entwine together, the tonals going from operatic highs to the deepest bass voices in perfect harmony. It must have lasted about ten minutes, but it was, a, but it was touching for an eternity. Midnight Mass Hello, Marisa. In 1885, a man named Charles Corey shared the following story for a collection of ghostly tales. His grandfather, a man by the name of Chaton, Chaton, was traveling on business one Christmas Eve. It had snowed heavily all day, and all the familiar landmarks on his route were covered with white drifts. Fearing he would lose his way, Chaton decided to walk beside his horse rather than ride. 
he happened to pass the ruins of an ancient chapel on the way home. As he trudged past, he heard bells chiming, mid chiming midnight, then the tinkling of lighter bells, as if parishioners were being called to mass. Chad was intrigued. Was it possible that the chapel of St. Christopher had been restored? He hadn't noticed it as he, as he passed it that morning. He came closer to the chapel as the bells continued to peal out. They're welcome. The chapel looked beautiful in the moonlight. Warm light spilled invitingly from the windows. Chet tied his horse to the gate and went inside. Every pew in the chapel was filled with people, but the place was eerily silent, except for the merrily ringing bells. Maybe the devout congregation was lost in fervent prayer. As he couldn't find the seat, Chatton knelt on the flagstones near the entrance. The priest and his server were busy at the altar. Midnight Mass had begun. Chatton was thrilled to attend the Mass in such a beautifully restored little chapel. The priest turned toward the parishioners to give a blessing, and Chatton was struck by the intensity of the priest's gaze. Those bright eyes seemed to fix on him, to single him out from the rest of the congregation. The priest lifted the host and held it up, saying in a strangely hollow voice, is there anyone here who can receive? Silence reigned in the small chapel. Three times the priest repeated his call to communion. Chatterton got to his feet, a little irritated that the rest of the people had ignored the priest's invitation. Chatterton assured the priest that he had gone to confession just that morning, before setting off on his trip. He had intended to take communion the next day on Christmas Day. But if you wish it, Chatterton said, I'm ready to receive the body and blood of our Lord at once. The change in the priest's expression was instant and dramatic. He pinched, his pinched, sallow face lit up with happy relief. He came down the altar steps and met Chatton at the communion rail. Chatton knelt in reverence and received the host. May my blessing rest upon you, Chatton, the priest said. Chatton glanced up in surprise. How had the priest known his name? But he had no time to wonder. Once. On a snowy Christmas Eve, such as this, I refused to go and give the last rites to a dying person. That was 300 years ago. I could not be delivered from purgatory until one of the living should consent to receive communion from my hand. Thanks to you, I shall now be released. The moment the, free, the priest finished speaking, the torches went out, plunging the chapel into darkness. When Chatton could see once again, he realized he was standing alone in the ruins of the chapel. Snowflakes drifted down because the roof had vanished. Where the pews had been an instant before, new frost-killed nettles sagged under the weight of newly fallen snow. Chatton slogged his way through the dead weeds to the chapel door. He untied his horse, and together they walked away from the chapel of St. Christopher. Okay, we just hit the afterward, so give me a second here to call up the Kipling book, and we'll read ghost stories by... By 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 Rudyard Kip, Rudy Kipling, so let me get back in to the main page on here. So give me a couple minutes to do this. Remat Remat Google moments. I have a lot of stuff on here, so I have to like sort through to find Google. Where are you? So give me a couple minutes. Take a break. Go use the restroom, and uh, you know, or whatever it is you want to do. Maybe restock your food or coffee or whatever. And I'll find this, get this book rolling. Okay, project. Give me a second. Yeah. So we're looking for ghost stories.
Don't do that. Stop that. Project Moonbird, I'm just going to go in that way. I don't care. I don't care. Okay. I need to get this up, so let's not... I'm getting this weird message about my computer, this thing not being secured. Just hang on. Let's see what it wants. Securely certificate. Proceed. Okay, let's just go with it. Don't you hate when you do that? You know, you're going, you're flying, you know, you're flying along with this, and then all of a sudden you get these messages that, you know, something's wrong. You got to go through all this, all, all the jumps. So let me get the uh, search on this and get this going. Okay, let's try this one more time. I knew it would take a couple minutes to do this. So give me a couple minutes. Like I said. Let's see. Where's the search? Search and browse. Okay, here we go. Ghost stories. Be nice with other types. Okay. Let me pull this up. I hope everybody's having a great night. I am so far. Now, if I can pull this, pull this off and find the stories I want. No records found. What? Oh, because I spelled it wrong. So far, the day was going well. <laughs> okay, so let me go back. Okay. Let me change this, okay? So uh, we're going to read a book of ghost stories by Kipling. I just have to get in there and get it, so give me a second. The reason why... Why is that telling me? I keep misspelling this. And the reason why I wasn't prepared for this is because I didn't really know how much room I had left in that book. So, okay, give me a second. Anyway, I hope you're all feeling good. I hope uh, everybody's getting over this crud because it's nasty. Okay, let me find this now. It's here. There's thousands of these things in here, so it's pretty cool. It's just a matter of finding what you want. So give me a second. But I'm looking forward to, you know, reading more from this book. There it is. Okay. Let me get in here. Let's read online. Okay, so here we go. The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Ghost Stories by Rudyard Kipling. So this is where we're starting. Here we go. The Phantom Rickshaw. One of, the few, one of the few advantages that India has over England is a great nobility. After five years' service, a man is directly or indirectly acquainted with the two or three hundred civilians in his province. All the, all the messes of ten or twelve regiments and batteries, and some fifteen hundred other people of the non-official caste. Remember, this book was written like in the early 1900s. So there's going to be things in here that are kind of like non-woke. Okay, I'm going to tell you all this stuff. So just bear with me because, you know, it is what it is. In 10 years, his knowledge should be doubled. And at the end of 20, he knows or knows something about every Englishman in the empire and may travel anywhere and everywhere without paying hotel bills. Globetrotters who expect entertainment as a right have even, within my memory, blunted his open hardness. But nonetheless, today, if you belong to the inner circle and are neither a bear nor a black sheep, all houses are open to you. 
and our small world is very, very kind and helpful. Rickett of Camartha stayed with Polder of Command some 15 years ago. He meant to say, stay two nights, but was knocked down by pneumatic fever, by rheumatic fever, and for six weeks disorganized Polder's establishment, stopped Polder's work, and nearly died in Polder's bedroom. Polder behaves as though he had been placed under eternal obligation by Rickett, and yearly sends the little Ricketts a box of presents and toys. It is the same everywhere. The men who do not take the trouble to conceal from you their opinion that you are an incompetent ass, and the women who blacken your character and, and misunderstand your wife's amusements, will work themselves to the, ba to the bone on your behalf if you fall sick into serious trouble or into serious trouble. Heatherly, the doctor, kept, in addition to his regular practice, a hospital on his private account, an arrangement of loose boxes for incurables, his friend called it, but was but it was really a sort of fitting up shed for yeah, for craft that had been damaged by stress and weather. The weather in India is often sultry, and since the tale of bricks is always a fixed quantity, and the only liberty allowed is permission to work overtime and get no thanks, men occasionally break down and become as mixed as the metaphors in this sentence. Heather Lee is the dearest doctor that ever was, and his invariable prescription to all his patients is, lie low, go slow, and keep cool. He says that more men are killed by overwork than the importance of his world, world justified, of this world justified. He maintains that overwork slew Pansy, who died under his, under his hands about three years ago. He has, of course, the right to speak as an authority. And he laughs at my theory that there was a crack in Pansy's head and a little bit of the dark world came through and, and passed and pressed him to death. Pansy went off the handle, says Henry. After the stimulus of long leave at home, he may or may not have behaved like a, bat, like a bat, black guard to Mrs. Keith Wessington. My notion is that the work of the Katabundi settlement ran him off his legs and that he took to brooding and making much of an ordinary P&O flirtation. He certainly was engaged in mismannering, and she certainly broke off the engagement. Then he took a feverish chill, and all that nonsense about ghosts developed. Overwork started his illness, kept it all, kept it all light, kept it alight, and killed him, poor devil. Write him off to the system, one man to take the work of two and a half men. I do not believe this. I used to sit up with Pansy sometimes when Heatherly was called out to patients and I happened to be within claim. The man would make me most unhappy by describing in a low, even voice the procession that was always passing at the bottom of the bed. He had a sick man's command of language. When he recovered, I suggested that he should write out the whole affair from beginning to end, knowing that ink might assist him to ease his mind. When little boys have learned a new bad word, they are never happy till they have chalked it up on a door. And this is a, and this also is literature. He was in a high fever while he was writing, and the Blood and Thunder magazine diction he adopted did calm him. Two months afterward, he was reported fit for duty, but in spite of the fact that he was urgently needed to help an underman com commission stagger through a deficit, he preferred to die vowing at the last that he was hag-ridden.
I got his manuscript before he died, and this is his version of the affair, dated 1885. My doctor tells me that I need to go rest and get a change of air. It is not impossible that I should get both ere long rest that neither the red-coated messenger nor the midday gun can break and change the air far beyond that which any homeward-bound steamer can give me. In the meantime, I am resolved to stay where I am and, in flat defiance of my doctor's orders, to take all the world into my confidence. You shall learn for yourselves the precise nature of my malady and shall too judge for yourselves whether any man born of woman on this weary earth was ever so tormented as I. Speaking now as a condemned criminal, might speak ere the drop bolts are drawn. My story, wild and hideously improbable as it may appear, demands at least attention. That it will never receive credence, I utterly disbelieve. Two months ago, I should have scouted as mad or drunk the man who had dared tell, who had dared tell me the like. Two months ago, I was the happiest man in India. Today, from Peshawar to the sea, there was no one more wretched. My doctor and I are the only two who know this. He explained this, that my brain, digestion, and eyesight are all slightly affected, giving rise to my frequent and persistent delusions, with the same unwearied smile, the same bland professional manner, the same neatly trimmed red whiskers, till I begin to suspect that I am an ungrateful, evil-tempered invalid. But you shall judge for yourselves. Three years ago, it was my fortune, my great misfortune, to sail from Gravesend to Bombay on return for long leave with one Agnes Keith Wessington, wife of an officer on the Bombay side. It does not the least concern you to know what manner the woman she was, but my content with the knowledge that, ere the voyages had ended, both she and I were desperately and unreasonably in love with one another. Heaven knows that I can make the admission now without one particle of vanity. In matters of this sort, there's always one who gives and another who accepts. From the first day of our ill-omened attachment, I was conscious that Agnes's passion was a stronger and was stronger and more dominant, if I may use the expression, a purer sentiment than mine. Whether she recognized that fact then, I don't know. Afterward, it was bitterly plain to both of us. Arrived at Bombay in the spring of the, that year, we went our respective ways to meet no more for the next three or four months, when my leave and her love took us both to Samala. There we spent the season together, and there my fire straw burned itself out in the pitiful end with the closing year. I attempt no excuse, I make no apology. Mrs. Wessington had given up much for my sake, and was prepared <clears throat> there we go, to give up all. From my own lips, in August 1882, she learned that I was sick of her presence, tired of her company, and weary of the sound of her voice. Ninety-nine women out of a hundred would have wearied of me as I wearied of them. Seventy-five of that number would have promptly avenged themselves by active and obtrusive flirtation with other men. Mrs. Wessington was the hundredth. On her neither my openly expressed aversion nor the cunning brutalities of which I garnished our interviews had the first least effect. Had the least effect, sorry. 
Old-timey writing, guys. Jack, darling, what's her one eternal cuckoo cry? I'm sure it's all a mistake, a hideous mistake, and we'll be good friends again someday. Please forgive me, Jack, dear. I was the offender, and I knew it. That knowledge transformed my pity into passive endurance, and eventually into blind hate. The same instinct. I suppose, which prompts a man to savagely stamp on the spider he has but have killed. And with this hate in my bosom, the season of 1882 came to an end. Next year, we must meet again at Sima, she said, with her monotonous face and timid attempts at reconciliation, and I with loathing in her, in every fiber of my frame. Several times I could not avoid meeting her alone, and on each occasion her words were identically the same. Still the unreasoning wail that it was all a mistake, and still the hope of eventually making friends. I might have seen, had I cared to look, that the hope only was keeping her alive. She grew more wan and thin month by month. You will agree with me, at least, that such con conduct would have driven anyone to despair. It was uncalled for, childish, unwomanly. I maintained that she was much to blame. And again, sometimes, in the black, fever-stricken night watches. I had begun to think that I might have been a little kinder to her. But that really is a delusion. I could not have continued pretending to love her when I didn't, could I? It would have been unfair to both. Both of us. Last year we met again. At the same terms as before. The same weary appeal. And the same curt, curt answers from our lips. At least I would make her see how wholly wrong and hopeless we were her attempts at resuming the old relationship. As the season wore on, we fell apart. That is to say, she found it difficult to meet me, for I had other, more absorbing interests to attend to. When I think it over quietly in my sick room, the season of 1884 seems a confused nightmare, wherein light and shade were fantastically intermingled. My courtship of little Kitty Bannering, my hopes, doubts, and fears are long rides together by trembling avowal of attachment. Her reply by now and again, a vision of a white face flitting by in the rickshaw with the black and white liveries I once watched for so earnestly, the wave of Mrs. Wessington's gloved hand, and when she met me alone, which was but seldom the irksome monotony of her appeal. I loved Kitty Mannering, honestly, heartily loved her, and with my love for her grew my hatred for Agnes. In August, Kitty and I were engaged. The next day I met those accursed magpie to happenies. I'm sorry, we're going to say, okay, I'm just saying, don't get all wokey on me. I can't help it. At the back of Jekyll. And moved by some passing sentiment of pity, stopped to tell Mrs. Wessington everything. She knew it already. So, I hear you're engaged, Jack, dear. Then, without a moment's pause, I'm sure it's all a mistake, a hideous mistake. We shall be good friends someday, Jack, as we ever were. My answer might have made even a man wince. It cut the dying woman before me like a blow of a whip. Please forgive me, Jack. I didn't mean to make you angry, but true is true. And Mrs. Wessington broke down completely. I turned away and left her to finish her journey in peace, feeling, but only for a moment or two, that I had been an unutterly mean hound. 
I looked back and saw that she had turned her rickshaw with the idea, I suppose, of overtaking me. Okay, I see what this is. Uh, excuse me. I looked back and saw that she had turned her rickshaw with the idea, I suppose, of overtaking me. Okay. The scene and its surroundings were photographed on my memory. The rain-swept sky, as we were at the end of the wet weather, the sun, dingy pines, the muddy road, and the black powder-ribbon cliffs formed a gloomy background against which the black and white liveries of the Japanese, the yellow pet, the, the yellow paddle rickshaw, and Mrs. Wessington's down-bowed golden head stood out clearly. She was holding her handkerchief in her left hand and was leaning back exhausted against the rickshaw cushions. I turned my horse up a bypath near the Savagely Reservoir and literally ran away. Once I fancied I heard a faint call of Jack. This may have been in my imagination. I never stopped to verify it. Ten minutes later, I came across Kitty on horseback and, in the delight of a long ride with her, forgot all about the interview. A week later, Mrs. Wessington died, and the inexpressible burden of her existence was removed from my life. I went plains were perfectly happy. But three months were over. Before the three months were over, I had forgotten all about her except that at times the discovery of some of her old letters reminded me unpleasantly of our bygone relationship. By January, I had disinterred what was left of our correspondence from among my scattered belongings and burned it. At the beginning of April of the year, 1885, I was at Simla, semi-deserted Simla, once more, and was deep in lovers' talks and walks with Kitty. It was decided that we would be married at the end of June. You will understand, therefore, that loving Kitty as I did, I'm not saying too much when I pronounce myself, to have been, at that time, the happiest man in India. Fourteen delightful days passed, almost before I noticed their flight. Then, aroused to the sense of what was proper among mortal circumstances we were, I pointed out to Kitty that an engagement ring that was outward invisible sign of her dignity as an engaged girl. and that she must forthwith come to Hamilton to be measured for one. Up to that moment, I give you my word, we had completely forgotten so trivial a matter. To Hamilton's we accordingly went on the 15th of April, 1885. Remember that. Whatever my doctor may say to the contrary, I was then in perfect health, enjoying a well-balanced mind and an absolute tranquil spirit. Kitty and I entered Hamilton's shop together, and there, regardless of the order of affairs, I measured Kitty for the ring in the presence of the amused assistant. The ring was a sapphire with two diamonds. We then rode down the slope that leads to the Combermere Bridge and, and Felici's shop. While my water, I'm sorry, while my whaler, I apologize, while my whaler was cautiously feeling his way over the loose shale, and Kitty was laughing and chattering at my side, while all similar. This is to say much of it, had then come from the plains, was grouped round the reading room and Petit's veranda. I was aware that someone, apparently at a vast distance, was calling me by my Christian name. It struck me that I had heard the voice before, but when and where I could not determine. In the short space it took to cover the road between the path from Hamilton's shop and the first plank of the Combermere Bridge, 
I had thought over half a dozen people who might have committed such a, such a thing, and had eventually decided that it must have been singing in my ears. Immediately, opposite Valini's shop, my eye was arrested by the sight of four Japanese in magpie livery, pulling a yellow panel cheap bizarre rickshaw. To a moment, my mind flew back to the previous season and Mrs. Wessington with a sense of irritation and disgust. disgust. Was it not enough that the woman was dead and done with, without her black and white ser servitors reappearing to spoil the day's happiness? Whoever employed them now, I thought, it would, I thought I would call upon and ask for a personal favor to change the livery. I would hire them in myself and, if necessary, buy their coats from off their backs. It is impossible to say here what a flood of undesirable memories their presence evoked. Kitty, I cried, where are poor Mrs. Wellington's people turned up again? Oh, there are poor, sorry, there are poor Mrs. Wellington's Japanese turned up. I think it's, I, I, you know, Japanese. I'm just saying, you know, I don't want to insult anybody. Turned up again. I wonder who has them now. Kitty had known Mrs. Wellington slightly last season and had always been interested in the sickly woman. What? Where? she asked. I can't see them anywhere. Even as she spoke, her horse, swerving from a lame mew, threw himself directly in front of the advancing rickshaw. I had scarcely time to utter a word of warning when, to my unutterable horror, horse and rider passed through men and carriage as if they had been in the air. What's the matter? cried Kitty. What made you call out so foolishly, Jack? If I am engaged, I don't want all creation to know about it. There was lots of space between the mule and the veranda, and, if you think, I can't ride there. Whereupon Wilford Kitty set off, her dainty little hand in the air, her dainty little head in the air, at a head, at a head gallop in the direction of the bandstand, fully expecting, as she herself afterward told me, that I should follow her. What was the matter? Nothing indeed. Either I was mad or drunk, or, or the symbol was haunted with devils. I reined in my impatient cob and turned round. The rickshaw had turned too, and now stood immediately facing me near the left railing of the Combermere Bridge. Jack, Jack, darling. There was no mistake about the words this time. They, ran through, they rang through my brain as if they had been shouted in my ear. It's some hideous mistake, I'm sure. Please forgive me, Jack, and let's be friends again. <clears throat> the rickshaw hood had fallen back and inside, as I hoped and prayed daily for the death I dread by night, sat Mrs. Keith Wessington, handkerchief in hand and gold head bowed on her breast. How long I stared motionless, I do not know. Finally, I was aroused by my sight, taking the the whaler's bride and asking whether I was ill. From the horrible to the commonplace is but a step. I tumbled off my horse and dashed, half fainting, into Polizzi's for a glass of cherry brandy. There, two or three couples were gathered around the coffee tables discussing the gossip of the day. The trivialities were more comforting to me just then than the, than the consolations of religion could have been. I plunged into the midst of the conversation and once at once, chatted, laughed, and jested with, with a face when I came 
<clears throat> an iconic glimpse, thank you, of it in the mirror, as white and drawn as that of a corpse. Three or four men noticed my condition and, eventually, setting it down to the results of over many pegs. Charitable endeavored to draw me apart from the rest of the loungers, but I refused to be led away. I wanted the company of my kind, as a child rushes into the midst of a dinner party after a fright in the dark. I must have talked for about ten minutes or so, though it seemed an eternity to me, when I heard Kitty's voice outside inquiring for me. In another minute, she had entered the shop, prepared to rally upbraid me for, for failing so slightly in my duties. Something in my face stopped her. All right, we're going to stop there till Sunday. And uh, we'll be continuing with this Kipling book on um, ghost stories. Ghost stories by Mr. Kipling. Okay, let me mark my page here because let's do this right here. Here we got that. And okay, so I'm going to leave that down there. I want to thank everybody for hanging out and listening today. You know, we're like I said, excuse me, we're going to be back on track next week with uh, with, with with some really cool guests, and uh, I appreciate everybody sticking with me these past couple weeks while I recovered from whatever that crud was. All right, okay, you can find us, and I forgot to do this at the beginning of the show. If you're interested, whoa, we don't like that. If you're interested in the California Haunts team, you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Radio, California Haunts Ghostly Events, and the Sacramento Sears, S-E-E-R-S. We are a working and functioning paranormal team. You can also find us on TikTok under California Haunts, uh, Twitter at California Haunts, Twitch at Cal Haunts, and I'm also on Instagram under Ghosty Gal. So there's all kinds of ways to reach me if you, if you feel you might have something going on. Anyway, I appreciate you all coming tonight, and I will see you tomorrow <clears throat> at 6.30 p.m. with me and Nancy Matz, and we're going to be talking about what happens at the brink of death. So it should be an interesting conversation. Just a quick word of warning, though. I do have a doctor's appointment at 4, 4 p.m. Pacific tomorrow, and it's, it's midtown from where I'm at. So by the time I get out, I might hit traffic. So keep an eye out on the uh, show times because I may push the show back to 7 p.m. Pacific. All right, that's just a quick warning. But anyway, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here. And we're just trying to get the word out. Be sure to check out our YouTube uh, page at youtube.com forward slash at California Hunts Radio. There's more than 800 videos over there. And there are varying topics. I'm a journalist, photojournalist. I don't like to talk about the same thing day after day. So you're going to see a lot of different topics, you know, cryptids, psychic, you, you name it. It's all over there. Even even domestic problems. Everything's over there. So go ahead and check it out. I put stuff, I'm starting to categorize everything and if so it's easier to find. Anyway, I'll see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening. <laughs>